0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Robert Strong, Cole Swenson, Brian Teer, Jessica Jacobs, and Honoré Beno-Jeffers. You will now hear Robert Strong provide introduction.
1: Good morning and good afternoon. This is The Poet Confronts History, the Art of Research for Creative Writing, featuring Jessica Jacobs, Honoré Fanon Jeffers, Cole Swenson, and Brian Tier. It's wonderful to see all of you here. I'm Robert Strong, your moderator. I'm the editor for Poetic Research at Commonplace.org, the Journal of Early American History, Culture, and Literature. Um, where all of our panelists have appeared at one time or another. My most recent book of poetry uh, does confront history in the Massachusetts Bay Colony of the 17th century, the Puritans and the Native Americans. It's called Bright Advent and is just out in a gorgeous edition from the Good People at the Marie Alexander Prose Poetry Series and White Pine Press. If you want to continue the conversation that we begin here today. I'll be at the white pine <coughs> table tomorrow morning and I'll have on my poetry and history gloves and be happy to spar or, or hug or, or anything else. Um, so in 1953, the poetic historian Charles Olson wrote that, what strikes one about the history of said United States, both as it has been converted into story and as there are those who are always looking for it to reappear as art, what has hit me is that it does stay unrelieved and thus loses what it was before it damn well was history. What urgency or laziness or misery it was to those who said and did what they did. Any transposition which doesn't have in it an expenditure at least the equal of what was spent, diminishes what was spent. And this is loss. Loss in the present, which is the only place where history has context. Today we're lucky to hear from four panelists who have worked hard against that loss. And I think Olson would be happy with the various ways they have moved the ball forward by synthesizing their research and their poetry to get at those original expenditures of urgency and misery. I'll introduce everyone at once, and then we'll hear from everyone one at a time, and we'll have some time for a question and answer afterward. And um, I hope the Panelists will engage each other if you have questions as we go along um, or comments. Jessica Jacobs is the author of a book of memoir and poems, In Whatever Light Left to Us, as well as Pelvis With Distance, which won the 2015 New Mexico Book Award in Poetry and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. For that book, Jessica conducted extensive research on the life and work of George O'Keefe but she also spent a month alone off the grid in an extremely basic desert shack, immersed, I imagine, in something like the mindset of O'Keeffe's landscapes. Honoré Fernand Jeffers has received many awards and fellowships for her work, including from the American Antiquarian Society, the NEA, and the Witterbunner Foundation. She is the author of four books of poetry, most recently The Glory Gap's, But the one I'm really waiting for uh, is The Age of Phyllis, and I hear we'll hear a little bit from that today. Uh, We don't have it in hand yet, but Honoré's work and thinking about Phyllis Wheatley is very interesting and very important, so I will prod you all to follow it online until we have the book in hand. Honoré has written of er, a much earlier period of her reading. I had a feeling Phyllis Wheatley was trying to tell me something important. Something I was missing, but that I would get if I would only stop and pay attention to her. But for me today, the most important thing about Anne Ray is that she will be taking over the editorial helm of Poetic Research at Commonplace org later this year. Thank you. I'm very excited. This is this is a really um, exciting. Uh, news for the future of this unique venue for poetry with history. So send your work to commonplace.org and it might make it to the eyes of this brilliant writer and editor. Cole Swenson, it seems impossible to me to read a Cole Swenson book and avoid the provocations of research and poetry. She has published more, well, well more than 10 books of poetry, most recently, I believe, Landscapes on a Train, She's been a finalist for the National Book Award and has given us many translations of poetry from the French. Her recent collection of essays on poetics, Noise That Stays Noise, engages history on many of its pages. In the pages of poetic research a Commonplace, Cole has asked, what can poetic language do for a research project? And given us this preliminary answer. For one, it has qualities such as greater ambiguity, more flexible syntax, and a focus on image that can evoke things that cannot be said and so can point to aspects of a subject that can't be stated. Brian Tier, I actually first met Brian Tier, I think more than 10 years ago, in an AWP hotel bar where we <laughs> fell smoothly into a conversation about the alighted uh, homoeroticism in the journal's of Michael Wigglesworth, that seventeenth century Puritan minister and poet, best-selling poet. <laughs> the, day of, the day of doom. <laughs> so that should be that should be enough of an introduction for a panel of, of this subject. But I should say that Brian is a former Stegner Fellow at Stanford University and the recipient of numerous other poetry fellowships, including from the NEA Pew McDowell, and the American Antiquarian Society. He's the author of five full-length books of poetry, including the lambda award-winning pleasure, and most recently, The Empty Form Goes All the Way to Heaven. Jessica.
2: That does not move. So my my second year of grad school, uh, I fell hard for the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, drawn in as much by her life as her art. Um, If you don't know, she was pretty much a badass, so you should check her out. Uh, And found myself writing poems in what I imagined as her voice. But even as I read as much about and by her as I could, multiple biographies, a stack of art books, and over a thousand pages of letters, a small but insistent inner critic kept reminding me there were already shelves of books about O'Keefe, written by historians and scholars, people far more qualified than I was. Um, And as you might be aware, she also has art on pretty much every tote bag, calendar, uh, (laughs) dorm room poster, uh, to the point where it's almost like a visual Muzak, like you can't see it anymore. So who, who was I to try and write about her? How could I possibly find a new perspective on such a legendary figure? And even if I did, how could I add something of value? So it took me a long time to give myself the permission I needed to pursue this project. So I guess what I'd like to do today is to help share that permission with you the permission to write about whatever subject it is that made you want to come to this panel today. Uh, and I'll also share one of the practices that most helped me write the poems themselves. Because honestly, in a time, especially now that we're in DC, when we are screaming at each other across massive ideological divides, persona poetry and the research it requires feels more necessary than ever. When done well, such poetry demands we explore voices and viewpoints not our own, demands we act with empathy, looking at others, even those with whom we disagree, with not judgment, but a desire to understand and even find possible points of agreement. So let's start with permission. Just as I began writing about O'Keeffe, Natasha Trethewey visited my school to read from Thrall, her most recent collection. I was thrilled I had been obsessing for the last year over her second book, Belloc's Ophelia, which was written from the perspective of a young woman named Ophelia who worked in a brothel in turn of the last century, New Orleans. Like Natasha herself, Ophelia was a woman of mixed race. And I noticed as Natasha began to read the personal poems, the poems about her own life from Thrall, many of them grappling directly with the difficulties she'd had with her father, who was white, I heard echoes of the same concerns she'd given to Ophelia a decade before. It seemed as though those earlier poems, written in another woman's voice, had given her the distance she'd needed to work through subjects that felt perhaps, at the time, far too private and painful to confront head-on, and had invested Ophelia with the spark needed to make her live on the page. In this way, I learned that while persona poetry seems to violate that most basic rule of write what you know, one of the best ways into your subject may well be what you know best, your own experiences and concerns serving as a launch pad from which to explore this other person's life, while helping you write poems about them that only you could write. Though I wasn't aware of them until much later, the reasons O'Keefe resonated with me are now clear. Uh, To go to grad school, I I left a really steady career in corporate publishing and was trying to figure out what it means to be a writer. Uh, And there was O'Keeffe, who who had it all figured out. She had walked away from her classical art school training to forge her own path as an artist, as a feminist, and also at the time, um, I had recently left a relationship and I was trying to see how an intense focus on writing and teaching could possibly fit into any future relationship. But in O'Keeffe's correspondence with her husband, the photographer Alfred Stieglitz, she maintained a passionate if tumultuous marriage to another artist while also retaining long stretches of solitude and a fierce independence. So in getting to know her better, in doing the research I needed to feel that I understood her beyond just this surface scrim, she became more than a grand mythological legend and became instead a flesh-and-blood woman I wanted to understand, a woman I hoped would help me better understand myself and a possible path forward. Permission granted, um, by the time summer rolled around, I was on my way to the O'Keefe Museum Research Center in Santa Fe, and um, I like to over-prepare, so I had an entire postal bin filled with books, uh, a timeline of every possible moment in her life that I could possibly write about, uh, and nearly 100 pages of notes, uh, which is to say I was completely and totally overwhelmed. Uh, Yeah, I had no idea where to go from there. And um, I had consumed so many ideas and experiences, not my own. It felt like every time I sat down to write, they crowded my throat until I could barely breathe, let alone breathe life into new poems. Striving for accuracy, I had lost any chance of authenticity. I was left instead with a static collection of lineated facts. Um, So I went to the desert, as Robert said, and uh, like any good Jew in need of salvation, I turned to the Catholics. (laughs) Obviously. Uh, So for this next part, especially for the atheists among you, please feel free to swap out the word God with either the word poetry or inspiration. Uh, Okay, so a little history. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, believed it was not scholarship but imagination that offered the most direct path to God or poetry or inspiration. Yeah, you got it. Uh, So as part of his spiritual exercises, he developed what he called Ignatian contemplation or imaginative prayer. In imaginative prayer, you don't just read words on a page, say the story of Jesus in the manger. You practice instead what Ignatius calls composition of place, using your five senses to imagine your way in to that moment. Because for most of us, sight is the dominant sense, you might begin with where everyone is located in the scene, with how the light falls on each person's face. Then you might imagine the sounds of the animals, the smell of all that human fear and excitement. What the clothes of that time felt like, was that a scratchy texture, that fabric, whether it was hot or cold, and on and on. And once you've constructed that kind of living, breathing stage set in your mind, you imagine yourself into the scene and let it play out around you. Ignatius then advises that your role there is not to judge, but to be receptive, to be as open as possible to the presence of God, however that might manifest. For events when you have little information, when moments or voices have been lost or actively suppressed, this can also be a method to imagine your way in to what's missing— This was the practice that helped me enter O'Keeffe's world. To demonstrate more clearly what I mean, I'm going to end with a poem, first walking you through the process and facts that went into it. When O'Keeffe was in New Mexico, staying there alone for months at a time while her husband remained in New York, they would often write to each other up to two or three times a day. So the poem I'm going to read takes place three years after Stieglitz has died. Uh, when O'Keefe finally moved from New York to take up permanent residence in New Mexico. Though their relationship near the end was sometimes contentious, um, Stieglitz spent a lot of time complaining about his physical ailments, um, how difficult it was to have her away. There was always intense mutual love and appreciation between them. And after his death, um, she rarely spoke of him. But she painted the painting that this poem responds to ecrastically uh, in her third year of mourning, a blackbird with snow-covered red hills. Uh, and in the painting is a landscape in which the vivid red hills, if you've ever been out to the high desert in New Mexico, they're just, they're so bright. But in this painting, they're completely ghosted out by snow. And they haunt the foreground of the painting in the same way that I imagined his memory haunted her every day. And above them, there's a blackbird painted in the sky. And while I was researching this painting, I, there was just something I was very taken by it. I learned that her nickname for Stieglitz, one of her nicknames, was Old Crowfeather. And so, in a way, this was like a posthumous portrait of Stieglitz. So all of this research done, I've I've learned all of these things, I tried to imagine my way into the mind and body that painted this, sketching the layout of her Adobe home in my notebook, imagining the routines of her solitude. And what occurred to me as I traveled with her through her day was that after so many years of constant communication, there was no reason that death meant she would stop writing to him. That she would stop communicating with him. And that perhaps part of the reason that she had chosen not to return to New York was because she could just pretend. She could be in New Mexico like she'd always been, and Stieglitz could be in New York, still alive, still there, waiting for her to return. A blackbird with snow covered red hills. Georgia O'Keeffe, Abiquiú, New Mexico, 1949. After years shared at a distance, I am already accustomed to an empty bed. I summon the dogs from the morning melt, their garland of red prints mudding the floors. Walls breathe back the stove's heat. As long as I am here... You can still be in New York, grousing about your bowels and feet. I pull on overshoes, walk, sketch, you lunch with old friends at the gallery. I make dinner, read, wear your sweater to bed, the blue one. Fall asleep writing to you in my head of that day, the next Knees tucked so tight to my chest, I hold my own souls, cannonball through the night. And you are there, taking sun on the dock, sputtering as my lake splash startles you awake. Love, come join me in this water. Thank you.
0: Um, I'm not going to speak very long, um, but uh, before I do speak, I'd like to acknowledge the presence and the body <laughs> of the renowned poet Afa Michael Weaver here in the first row. Um, for over 20 years, For over 20 years, he has encouraged me to commune with the ancestors, which is to write spiritual truth and not only the historical truth. And I love him very much. Um, I first started doing archival history about 28 years ago as a graduate student at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, I was there in a journalism program, which I promptly flunked out of, and um, ran up a whole bunch of student loans, And um, but I was in an African American history class, it was a graduate class, with uh, the great Joseph Harris of Howard University, uh, and he was a visiting professor. And uh, I found letters from enslaved African Americans who had written their masters, and um, they didn't know that many of these letters existed in in the in the collections. This was you know uh, nearly thirty years ago. This was in 1989. So um, it's only now that I find that. You know, that that archival information was important to me emotionally and spiritually, but it's only now that um, I have found it useful in terms of my work. It's in another book of mine, which is fiction, and um, my first uh, novel, uh, which is in my agent's hands, and I'll be reading from that tomorrow. Um, In terms of my poetry, I began work on a series of poems imagining the life and times of Phyllis Wheatley Peters, um, the 18th century African-American poet who was the first black woman that we know of to publish a book of poetry. Um, And I started on that um, tentatively 14 years ago, and I've written Three books since then. Um, It's it's been a long journey because, you know, uh, she is the mother of African-American literature, and so I wanted to get it right. Um, At first, it was only supposed to be a series of maybe eight to ten poems. However, I received uh, Barron's Artist Fellowship to the American Antiquarian Society in 2009, Um, The American Antiquarian Society is a learned society dedicated to the study of early American history. Membership is by election only, and 14 American presidents have been elected into the society, so when I first went, it was on a fellowship, and then, in two thousand and fourteen, I received a letter that I had been elected um, into the American <laughs> Antiquarian Society, and um, I still don 't know who put my name up for that, um, and um, yeah i don 't know how many people who are, you know who have masters of fine arts poetry. Um, are members of the American Antiquarian Society, but I think one of the reasons whomever put my name up is that when I arrived there, I was sent on a journey to write a full book not only about Wheatley Peter's life, but about pre-colonial West Africa, the transatlantic slave trade, um, and um Uh, black uh, male participation in the American Revolution, which um, even today I'm shocked that people do not know that over 5,000 black men fought um, on just the side of um, the Continental Army in the American Revolution, and that does not include black men who fought on the side of the British, right? Um, So um, I wanted... just write my poems and then I found out that much of the research that we, you know, that we think we know on her work on her marriage on um, whether or not she had children, that all of that is um, fabricated Um, and so that was um, one of the things that was really, really shocking. Uh, What we, um, Know about uh, Phyllis Wheatley Peters' life, and I insist on calling her Phyllis Wheatley Peters because she was married, and um, despite um, the um, lies that uh, uh, her first biographer told about her, um, she went, uh, before she died, she went by Phyllis Peters. Um, but we, we don't know that because of the lie that um, her biographer uh, tells that she never used her husband's name. But there's documentation um, in a great, wonderful book. So let's separate you know the first book from the latest biography, um, which is incredibly detailed um, by Vincent Coretta. Uh, called um, Phyllis Wheatley, Genius in Bondage. And so we have all of this documentation that shows um, that she was by Phyllis Peters after after she married. Um, I think one big issue is that sometimes historians, um, big issue with historical poetry is sometimes historians uh, don't pay attention to the work of creative writers and vice versa. Writers don't pay attention to historians. I'm hoping now that we um, are um, looking um, at someone holding the seventh steel in his hands. And um, as the old black lady said, you know, we're living in the last days. Um, (laughs) That that maybe, you know, people will start to understand that, you know, uh, past this prologue, you know, as uh, William Faulkner has said, um, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past, right? Um, So I think that's why, Robert's founding of the poetic research column for um, Commonplace um, is incredibly important. It allows an interdisciplinary approach to the fields of creative writing and history in a respectful way. And um, Robert published... Um, some of my first Phyllis Wheatley poems. Um, and when I met him, I was like, wow, you're so much younger and good looking. I
2: thought, <laughs> for some reason, I thought he was like, you
0: know, David McCullough, right? You know, with like a gravelly voice. I love David McCullough. Um, I have... Romantic aspirations about David McCullough, <laughs> but um, I and then I'm going to wrap up. I've talked for a few years about gaps in Phyllis Wheatley Peters' biography. Um, what we know comes from a memoir by Margaretta Matilda Odell, and as an as a um, someone who as an antiquarian someone who studies research. I'm grateful that she had an interest in Miss Phyllis. Um, As a black woman, um, I'm enraged by her appropriation of this black woman's life and by her leaping into gaps and um, erasing her black family. Um, Phyllis Wheatley had a life in Africa before she was a slave. Okay? Phyllis Wheatley had parents. She had a mother. Susanna Wheatley was not her mother, but she was a very kind woman. And we are grateful to her for loving that little girl and helping her work get out there. We, We are very grateful to her, but she was not Phyllis Wheatley's mother. Phyllis Wheatley had a best friend who was a black woman, and we don't hear a lot about her, and she had a man who was a black man, and I found, not Vincent Coretta, or rather the librarians at the American Antiquarian Society found and passed to me. Information that shows that even after Miss Phyllis's death, Mr. John was trying to get her work published. So what we have is a series of stereotypes about this black man. um, That he abandoned her and moved further south. Um, which is ridiculous. Why would a free black man move further south to slaveholding territory? Um, and I found him and published in um, Commonplace, a year before Vincent Coretta's book came out, that I found uh, John Peters alive on the 1790 census of Boston. So he had not left. Vincent Coretta, let's just be so grateful to him, found that John Peters was in debtor's prison when Phyllis Wheatley died. So um, that's why he wasn't at her side. And to this day, there is no proof that she had children. We do not have baptismal records. We do not have graves. We do not even know where Phyllis Wheatley is buried. So then it became a mission of mine to um find as much as I can but also I love her you know she's my ancestor and I I want people to understand she was not an uncle tom she was not um someone who was grateful for being um uh, captured into slavery um but you have to read the letters and you have to read all the poems and you have to look at the context. And that takes someone who is interested and who has not already made up his or her mind. So I'm going to end with a poem that uh, one of my students just the other day said, Professor Jeffers, this poem is brainwashing. When I was talking about, we were reading Phyllis Wheatley's most infamous poem on being brought from Africa to America. Um, It was a white student. Um, I I have some, you know, really great black women, Latinas, white women, and they're just all outraged now. And I just love these little baby, you know, radicals. I love them. And they're like, it's super brainwashy, Professor Jeffers. So, um... I want to read the poem that really transformed my idea of what these two lines mean. T'was mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand. And there's one word, yai. Yai in the Wolof language means mother. And so... This is mothering number two, Yai, someplace in the Gambia, circa 1761. Mercy, child. What a mother might have said, pointing at the sun rising, what makes life possible, then dripped the bowl of water reverent into oblivious earth. Was this prayer for her? Respect for the dead or disappeared an act to please a genius child her little girl could speak only of water bowl, sun, light arriving light gone sometime after the nice white lady paid and named her for the slave ship mercy what the child called Phyllis claimed over that sea journey journey Let's call it that. Let's lie to each other. Not early descent into madness, naked travail among filth and rats. What got Phyllis over the sea? What kept a stolen daughter? Perhaps it was mercy, dear Rita. Mercy, dear brethren. Water, bowl, sun, a mothering, God's milky sound, morning shards. And she wondered if her child forgot her real name, refused to envision the rest. Baby teeth missing. And somebody wrapping her treasure, barely, in a dirty carpet. Twas mercy. You know the story how we've lied to each other?
3: What great talks. I want to read these books right away. Um, Thank you very much. And thanks to Robert, too, for putting this all together. For <laughs> focusing on this great topic. Um, and if, if I think about my, my work, I realize that almost everything I've ever written takes place um, in the in with historical context. I've written pieces that were 15th century and 17th century and 19th century. Um, and in thinking about why, I think about refraction and the way that each different era that connects with our own uh, creates a different kind of echo, a different kind of reflection. So by working with different time periods, I find that I see something different about our present. Uh, and so I'm going to just read some comments about the relationship between past and present, and then uh, read kind of that same idea as it appears in an essay. I've been writing a series of half-poems, half-essays on, in particular, uh, visual art, landscape artists who work with a kind of non-appropriative landscape gaze. And um, so I'll read a couple paragraphs from that, and then I'll read a short piece from a book that just came out from a chapbook from Omnidon that's um, about a river in the south of France and it frames the river through its history. History, for me, has nothing to do with the past but instead marks a specific kind of commitment to time. It is to embrace time and to make a conscious decision not to try to transcend it. One way that manifests for me is in a refusal of the notion of timeless art, art that supposedly participates in the unchangeability of eternity and that thus defines the eternal as that without change, which means that it's not alive. In short, timeless art is art that refuses to engage with life. Timeless art is based in an ethics and aesthetics that dodge the threat of history and history is always a threat. It is going to end badly, which is to say, yes, everything will die. And responsible art, i.e., that which truly has the ability to respond to life, works constantly in the face of that fact and will not work anywhere other than in staring that down. So I'm interested instead in a conjugated art, an art that niches into the flow of time, knowing that it will not be smooth. Conjugated art risks not only becoming dated, but above all, it risks admitting and demonstrating that there is no universal. There is nothing that can reach everyone. This is the root of my interest in history. It's an attempt to embed myself in time as a recognition of the inevitability of moments passing and a commitment to a present infinitely infinitely enriched by retaining as active agents as much of the previous as possible. The timeless is, in fact, the only real past, and no one moment can be any more or less past than any other. In their passing, they are equalized. We speak of one event as being further in the past than another, but that's only a product of our penchant for narrative. We clutch at the apparent clarity of sequence. But that's an illusion, and writing engaged with the historical is committed to engaging with that, in keeping the past available to the present by investing a radical understanding of time as an imminence activated by detail. To write with history is to write in a way that brings detail alive, that literally re-presents it, that causes it to be present again. Because all art takes place entirely and only in the present. History is a story that we're telling now, and our telling it keeps it present, active, and pertinent. And this next section comes from a, an essay poem on the British filmmaker and visual artist Tacita Dean. Fascinating woman, really, really amazing work, um, Googleable. So, but not very well-known, so if you remember the name, you might just Google it and see who she is. For centuries, the easy epithet of timelessness has been tossed at great works in a presumption of universal applicability. Such works are supposed to exist in the infinite tense of eternity and inalterability. But there are social and political ramifications to keeping works of art metaphorically in neutral if we can make an analogy between verb structure and manual transmissions. They are neutered. On the other hand, there are bodies of work, such as deans, that offer an occasion to consider non-timeless art, or art in time, which might be thought of as conjugated art, art which has been taken out of the suspension of the infinitive and clicked into a specific niche in the temporal continuum. In conjugated rather than timeless art, the work's relation to the grammar of culture radically shifts. Art is the verb in the syntax of cultural exchange, and art conjugated, no matter into what tense, is necessarily engaged in social and political networks that timeless art can't reach. In contrast to timeless art's inalterability, thus invulnerability, conjugated art is extremely vulnerable. Things in time change, and not necessarily in step with time zone changes. Instead, they risk becoming inappropriate, irrelevant, passe, and anachronistic. Dean thwarts this risk by facing it head on, engaging the anachron with conviction." And one of her favorite words is anachronism. She celebrates anachronism in great ways. Um, so I'm going to read a few pages from this little chapbook that just came out. And um,
0: What's the name?
3: Oh, it's called Gave. It looks like it's gave, but in fact um, it's Gave because a Gave is the word in Berennais, which is a region in the south of France that means a torrent or a river. And so this is about the Gave de Poe. Okay. A river is always more than its water. In this case, for instance, Les Saligues, the Baronet's word for the rich floodplains along the banks of the Gove, flourishing with ash, oak, and poplar, a territory used for pasturing cattle, cutting firewood, market gardening, and by birds for nesting and foraging, by moles for tunneling, and by rabbits and feral cats. Riverbank and pasture, flock after flock, the willow of the psalter, fetter but faltered, holding on with an animal hoof as if the air got sheerer. Cattle, sheep, goats, and horses, and they err. 1375, a woman in the fog, leading fifty sheep to the edge of a cliff where they all spend the night, not knowing in which direction the cliff ran. 1593, a goat herd, new to the job, got lost on his way back and so, deci- <clears throat> so decided to follow the herd, which decided to pace back and forth across the Salig until morning. 1711, a man returning after many years away, got lost just a mile or so from his former home and ended up miles away again, where he spent the rest of his life. These are but a few examples of the curve and of the turn and of the return of yet never, even if you were to weave it from the grasses, would it encircle or ever offer a figure with a center. Bank and pasture, the flock another water. 1535, a woman asleep against one of her sheep, curled tightly into her, river adorned, a river by nature, overflows its terms water water we please another all repetition is in some part spell as all water repeats itself is answered carry me over so over me carried all water is over bearing a border we carry it anchor as it carries us in a small blue boat rode by a large blue dog that cannot look back. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Um, so I'm going to... Hi, I'm Brian. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you, Robert, and uh, for organizing this. And... Um, I'm not sure I would have even heard about the Antiquarian Fellowship if it hadn't been for you. So I really appreciate that. I'm going to read um, a small part of a research statement that I wrote about my time there. Um, and it begins with an epigraph. I went to go research 19th century spiritualism, in part. And it be- there was um, a very uh, well-distributed newspaper of the spiritualist movement called Banner of Light. And so I begin with an epigraph from the Banner of Light from January 2nd, 1904, that says optimistically Eternity is today, and everybody is in it. I could write, I went to the archive to look for ghosts, or, longing to be haunted, I went to the archive. I could write, I went to the archive to look for ghosts I could believe in, or, I went to the archive to look for evidence of the ghosts I already believed in. I could write something more academic, like, I went to the archive to construct for myself a the theological history of the ghosts in colonial and antebellum American religious cultures. Or I could write that I wanted to understand what the ghost was doing in the American imagination before the spiritualist movement of the 19th century. What role did it play before it entered first the parlor, then the seance circle, and then the spirit cabinet, where it spilled forth phosphorescent from the mouth of a young woman? I could write that I went to the archive to research a prehistory of spiritualism, given that all of the histories I'd read proceeded as though Americans had no use for ghosts before the Fox sisters in March of 1848 claimed to communicate with the spirit of a murdered man who'd been buried in their cellar. I could write each subjunctive statement here is true, but they are most true taken together. Speaking as they do to the simultaneous, sometimes contradictory desires each of us brings to bear upon the archive and its materials— desires latent and explicit, desires sentimental and libidinal, desires intellectual and discipline-driven, desires purely concerned with the satisfaction of curiosities and the stimulation of imagination, desires intended more as interventions than as inventions, more rebellion than obedience. I could write, I could write, I went to the archive, and even though I could write all of these things, not one of them would be true without also writing that I did not know why I went to the archive. I could write, I could write, I went to the archive only if I did not know why. I op- pushed open the front door, showed my identification, received the key to my locker, and signed the guest book. Each day my hand trembled at my desk, but I could not write that. I could not write, I went to the archive and carried into it. The dead I could not forget. I could not write. I went to the archive already haunted. But when I write ghost, what do I mean exactly? The word can act as noun or verb, as figurative or literal, each of its denotative meanings easily shading off into a wide range of suggestive connotations. Ghost is pre-Germanic in its formation. Its deepest roots and cognates are in negative emotions, fury or anger in pre-Germanic, ugly in Sanskrit, rage in Old Norse, and to terrify in Gothic. Its more recent etymologies consistently draw upon a cosmological or theological notion of a spirit or soul that inhabits the unseen world, guest or gist or geist. Its common contemporary denotation, a visible spectral presence of someone dead, only arises much later, in the late Middle Ages, in time to grace the stages of the Renaissance and the pages of Increase and Cotton Mather, early fathers of the colonies. In the archive, I thought a lot about the connections between anger, terror, and the spirit in U.S. history in particular, and it seemed to me that the history of the ghost is a history of the triangle created between them, a triangle as indicative of the violence of political and cultural change as of the emotional turmoil generated by losses both psychic and bodily. Perhaps spiritualism remains so poignant to me, because it was the last major native religious movement to emerge from and make full use of the triangulation between anger, terror, and spirit. Its seances, spirit cabinets, and spirit photographs functioned like little theaters in which believer and huckster alike staged the fertility and ugliness of cultural crisis. That ghosts have always played a crucial role as indicators of social change is an argument increasingly popular among cultural historians. As Judith Richardson writes, hauntings, this is a quote from her, often appear in places where social change threatens to obliterate any sense of historical continuity. Ghosts operate as a particular and peculiar kind of social memory, an alternate form of history-making in which things, usually forgotten, discarded, or repressed, become foregrounded, whether as items of fear, regret, explanation, or desire. So when I write Ghost, what do I mean exactly? Wasn't I in the archive because denotations themselves shift with history and context? Like conscience, history is peculiarly double— Inasmuch as it is haunted by our acts, it haunts us, both of us, both ghosted and ghostly. History, is that the name for the ghost of something that is paradoxically still alive? In the archive, it seemed to me that each book or pamphlet or image I called up from the stacks arrived as a device with which I might contact the dead. Much like the Ouija board over which many have hovered in high hopes, the archive documents seemed activated most by my hopes, my eye a kind of planchette moving through the proffered alphabets until a letter lit up with significance. I'd come to the archive longing to be haunted, longing to contact the ghosts I already believed in, and yet unable to contact those who brought me there. Each novel or treatise, stereograph card, broadside, diary or letter offered names, a litany. Eventually, I noted that even the critical languages of bibliography and the history of the book are haunted by metaphors of haunting. The item that cannot be found is called a ghost. This guy, which I loved, thinking of all of the little spaces, empty spaces in the back of the archive, the scholar Jeffrey Todd Knight has written beautifully about, quote, ghost images, unquote, the faint ink transfers of print from one page to another, as often overlooked keys to print and culture and history. Have you have ever seen an old book with a ink engraving that has like a vellum page over it and you lift up the vellum page? Often that engraving has leached onto the vellum, and if it's leached on the vellum, it's likely it's already leached onto the title page, too, but that little image on the vellum, sort of floating shroud of Turin, is called a ghost image. Each day, my hand trembled at my desk. But on days when my attention had, for many hours each day, for many weeks, been entirely absorbed by stacks and scatters of books and pamphlets, my experience seemed so deeply saturated with their language that it was no longer history that haunted me. It was I who wouldn't stop bothering the souls of other eras, disturbing their rest with research. My eyesight would blur and the edge of my desk would cradle my wrists as time went soft as vellum between the fingers, The whole of it unfolds like the pages of a book. It was as though my mind had too long rested between the pages of history itself, and there contracted the ghost image of its inks. But still, I was not satisfied, was not nearly haunted enough by direct contact. What was it? Who was it? I so much wished to find. And I'm skipping a big chunk. Um, it's basically about spiritualism as a kind of radical rejection and revision of Christianity, and how that's a long, there's a long history of antinomianism in American culture. That spiritualism, for all of its parodic qualities um, and all of its stagecraft, seemed to me to be um, as radical in its own way as someone like Ann Hutchinson, given that. Anne Hutchinson being a woman and being an early challenger of patriarchal, colonial structure, spiritualism was also largely run by women mediums. um, And a lot of authority was given to women during that period who didn't have a lot of social mobility, but mediumship, mediumship, transmediumship, speakers on the Athenaeum circuit actually gave a lot of women a certain amount of mobility um, and also public authority. Um, and so I found in spiritualism after research, like this really interesting pushback during the 19th century um, during a time of great cultural crisis and transformation, anyways. Um, so, as this, I'm not promising the segue makes sense, but I want to leave time for us. So as the colonies developed into a nation and a nation into an empire, to live an unorthodox life motivated by heterodox faith nonetheless still necessitates intelligence, creativity, compassion, and courage. And ultimately that's what I loved about um, both researching early colonial heresies but also spiritualism itself was the courage to live an unorthodox life with a heterodox faith. Um, with an emphasis on um, spiritual insight gained by experience. Again, an important kind of American tradition. So in this, it is like any serious contemplation of death. I'm reminded of what Susan Howe has written in Thoreau, of the elegiac Western imagination. I pick my compass to pieces, dark here in the driftings, in the spaces of drifting. "'Complicity Battling Redemption. "'Each day, I did not know why. "'I pushed open the archive's front door, "'showed my identification, "'received the key to my locker, and signed the guest book. "'Each day, my hand trembled at my desk. "'I picked my compass to pieces. "'But I could not write that. "'I could not write, I went to the archive, "'carrying the dead, I could not forget. "'I could not write, I went to the archive, already haunted.'" Research is a form of mourning. I know that. But I could not write, I went to the archive because I grew up Christian and came out as a gay man during the AIDS crisis. I remembered the politicians who claimed AIDS had come to cleanse the nation. Dark there in the driftings, I could not write, I went to the archive because my first partner, Jared, died of AIDS-related complications in 1999. For many gay men of my generation, adult sexuality and mourning have never been fully separate. Just as for many men and women throughout U.S. history, sexual shame and religiosity have never been fully separate. On the one hand, the alleged fatality of sexual pleasure. On the other, the fatal tainting of spirituality by orthodoxy. In the space of drifting, I could not write the classic American dualism. I knew that. And though I could not write it, I went to the archive and offered my history to history. And I could not write. I offered not to honor it, but to bury it there.
1: Okay, this is wonderful. Um, thank you, panelists. And we have a decent amount of time for questions. I I might take the moderator's privilege and um, just say some things that I'm thinking. I don't know if it'll turn into a question or where we'll go from it, but in the mix here, this idea of of having to imagine your way into what's missing, uh, I'm I'm hearing from everybody, in a way, uh, being reminded to pursue spiritual facts and not just historic facts. And the idea that what's missing is actually missing because of what we know. And that the archive has these uh, ghostly gaps in it um, that, that we're curious about. And this, the, the idea of timeless art uh, reminds me of the archive in that it's, at least in the past, has been hermetically sealed and that's what it was. Um, so, how, when we get to the moment where we're, we have a sense of what we've imagined our way into, and a way to be authentic rather than accurate, Does that affect your approach to getting the words down on the page? I don't know if anyone wants to pick that up.
4: I can talk about that. I mean, one thing that was awesome, and I don't know what the rest of you thought about working in archive along pretty much primarily historians, um, is that I didn't understand the process by which something becomes a fact. um, That... I was used to reading like poets' versions of history, We're like, there's this thing here, and there's this thing here, and they're super cool, and let's put them near each other and make stuff happen. And that's history, and I was like, really always quite enchanted by that. But when I was sitting there looking at historians who were like, I have to find 50 instances of this mention, of this detail from all of these documents, from this one, you know, year of the plague in Boston or whatever, in order for it to be a fact that blah, blah, blah. And I just was like, people died. Like, what? Like, that's kind of indisputable. Like, why do you have to prove it with, like, all of this paperwork? And they were like, that's how we do history, by the way. Um, And so... I was a little chastened, I must say, by that. I was sort of like, poets are pretty fast and loose with this history thing. (laughs) Um, So I agree with you guys saying, like, we need more conversation between the disciplines, I think, because it gave me actually a better sense of the ways in which sometimes poets misuse or abuse history. But it also gave me a very actually clear distinction between what I was doing. I very quickly was like, right, I'm not doing a documentary project. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not what I'm doing. Other people are here to do that. Other poets are here to do that. I'm here to do this other thing that I don't know what it is. Um, It has to do with history, but it's more a reading of history and a reading of these documents. And it's more like a personal essay, actually. Um, And that I hew very closely to the facts and I use a lot of documents and collage a lot of documents together. But again, I don't. I cite them in a bibliography, but I don't cite them in the text itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of create this 19th century voice out of a bunch of different people, and also colonial voices out of a bunch of different people that I think of as more a choral or collective kind of voice of a time or era. Um, so to me, I had to. I had. I was use that knowledge of like right I'm not writing history in the way that other people are I'm writing an essay and I have permission to do that mm-hmm. but I also have to claim for myself have to claim very clearly that I'm not using these other methods that other people would mm-hmm. and so for me it also was like and I'll document what I sources I use you know and like mm-hmm. I'll put that there mm-hmm. so people can go track down the facts mm-hmm. but I very quickly became aware that I was doing some other operations on the archive um, that aren't about biog- strict biography or strict historical, which it sounds like other people have. I'd be interested to hear how those who are doing historiography or actual histories, like how their relationships work. Mm-hmm. I'd, love
3: to, I'd love just to underscore one point you made, um, and that is that the historian goes in knowing what he or she has to find proof of. The poet goes into the same material looking not for proof of what is known but looking for the unknown. And that gap of what cannot be said but can only be intimated, I think is what poetry can do that in fact the historian cannot do. And it's part of the story of history that never gets told. And to work Heading toward the unknown is the only way that you can actually get to those interstices between facts, to get to those haunted little gaps.
0: Well, I'd like to trouble that notion (laughs) just a little bit, and probably it's because of um, my cultural background. And um, I've written about this like a teeny bit, and I'm working on essays, and who knows where this will come from. But um, I wrote an essay about narrative poetry um, in a, it was like an online symposium honoring um, Kwame Dawes, the uh, poet who. Um, and novelist, and he's like got like fifty eleven books, but um, and he's the editor of Prairie Schooner. But in the African American tradition, and in indigenous um, communities, um, as well, uh, American indigenous communities, oral tradition is also part of the historical record. So I think, um, and I also know. Historians who go in and they don't know what they're looking for, which is a kind of disorganized to some people, right? They're like, they're like, you know. Um, so I'm. I agree with you in one way, but in the other way, I do think that um, I went in knowing a spiritual truth, right? Maybe that's what I'm saying. But in terms of the documentation, I didn't go in knowing. I went in knowing that there was something about Phyllis Wheatley that people thought they knew and that they had gotten very, very wrong. Um, I received a lot of pushback, as Brian, you know. Um, I didn't feel, you know, like I was like, I'm on that. You know, when I went in there, I was like, so, so I'm a poet. You know, I was kind of defensive, right? But um, Caroline Sloat, who's, who's, I just like love her so, 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 so much. She told me it was going to take a black woman to say what needed to be said about Phyllis Wheatley. And Caroline Sloat is not a black woman. And she said, I think that you need to, you know, as a poet, you'll be able. To. So I think I'm sort of not troubling, but troubling at the same well, time. And
3: I don't mean to be too cut and dried. Obviously, lots oh, of historians yeah, are there to explore, <laughs> and they want to find out more. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: but I, I do about, but. I do feel as if there was a, a bit, which is why I think I'm so... Um, I feel so grateful to my little crew that was at um, the society when I was there, and the guy who was the director at the time, who's now someplace else, Paul Paul Erickson. Paul Erickson. They've been incredibly supportive, but there were people who came in, and when I said, I found John Peters alive on the 1790 census, so he couldn't have gone down south, like, I remember people were laughing at me, and they were like, you know, well, I'm sure. And I was like, look, I took pictures. Do you want to see the pictures, right? It wasn't until Vincent Perretta published it that it became real, right? And I do think that there is a need, again, which is why I'm so grateful to Robert, that people acknowledge that we are intellectuals, poets are intellectuals, but we just have a different vocabulary. So I don't know if that makes sense.
3: No, I think the whole issue of, of the suspicion against poetry and truth, and you know how the mm-hmm. uh, the the relation between poetry and truth is just mm-hmm. a huge subject. Mm-hmm. And I think documentary and archival work really raises that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, So I felt like because what you're talking about, that, you know, poetry and truth, that there's no nonfiction poetry section versus fiction poetry, Mm -hmm. you know, and and they all all kind of live together, um, that my responsibility came to be factual and accurate whenever I could. I mean, down to the point, like you talk about anachronisms, like of me trying to avoid them. You know, if I wanted to use... The word laminate, I had to actually look up and see if that existed at that time, like down to little, because I felt like um, if, I, if I did that and I was as faithful to those facts as I could, then I in some way gave myself the permission to write into the spaces where, you know, I, I could see the holes where there were no facts. Uh, and... That was a hard, that was a hard dance, but I, I, you know, I think I had to listen to what were those places that compelled me that I felt like I needed to write about. Um, But something else that, um, a choice that I made when writing about O'Keeffe was I interwove into poems, you know, in her imagined voice, poems from my own perspective, uh, poems about my experience of writing the poems, um, poems when I actually spoke to O'Keefe and asked her questions. I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a way of calling out those gaps and saying, I'm not the expert, I don't know everything. And and that kind of made me feel more comfortable to say this is a constructed story in some way. Yeah.
1: You did you want to wonderful thank you. Uh, I can say from my own observation that the Historians can sit without moving for longer. longer Ooh, than that one, that is true. Um, we have uh, we have five in minutes here <laughs> in tw- for um, a question. In, uh, did the people in back hear that question? No. So the question is from an art historian and poet, and it's about um, <coughs> writing words about words uh, or writing words about things that aren't words, roughly speaking. Yeah, the archive more than just words, and unfortunately, in our
3: culture,
1: we something's only history if it is words. Okay, yeah, so appro- approaching material, culture. and. I can answer
4: that really briefly. I mean, one is that I don't, I mean, I think it depends on who you are whether you need that tangibility or not. You know, like I think I would want to. Like I am one of those people that really loves the objects of the archive and the stuff of the archive and the printing of other eras and and the the actual paper and the binding and all of the ways in which. History is encoded in the material objects, which vanishes if you don't get to actually interact with them. And even the ghostliness of the ink on the vellum and that texture, like, so I wrote into the poems my interactions with, or images drawn from interacting with the objects. Um, but I also there's really great, like Susan Howe for me is in doing this particular. T- body of work was a real inspiration and in that she brings in all sorts of tr- either images you know from her archive or tries to create actual visual kind of representations through typesetting of like you know text sitting on top of each other the way that they can be superimposed again through textual ink transfer etc so I really f- feel like for me that's really important the sort of traces of materiality and of particularly a print culture. So my solution to the words about words is like, well, they're objects about words, or objects that contain words, and how do they do that? And how does that affect how I take in history and the sort of context of, of the words and I tried to keep those I mean that was very inspiring to me and part of the reason of even being in the archive but I don't know what other people think
3: I thinking more. about I think um, a time. okay but I just wanted to mention and point back to the Ignatius of Loyola and your idea, his idea of imaginative prayer of bringing the image forward and having that in front
1: thank you to our panelists
0: Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our
2: website at www.awpwriter.org.